This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Hello again, and welcome to an episode of the podcast Another Way. This is Adam Eichen, the Executive Director of Equal Citizens. It's been a while. Uh, and I know we've given you a number of promises that we would rekindle this podcast with consistent episodes, but now I can tell you it's real. We're back. I have a number of conversations lined up with folks across the country to tap into where we are as a democracy, the perils we face, and the promise of reform. And of course, Larry Lessig too will grab the mic to interview a wide range of prominent guests. And speaking of Lessig, today's episode will be a conversation between the two of us kind of a candid reflection about the state of democracy, some frank thoughts about feelings of loss, and also what keeps us motivated in a very, very disturbing political time. So let's get right to it. Larry, how's it going? Well, it's great to be back, Adam. Thanks for Thanks for kicking us off again, and thanks for inviting me to be your first guest in the kickoff. <laughs> this is this is a, a, a rebirth of another way, Larry. We've got a lot to talk about, um, and I want to jump right into it because I think that the thing that's been um, nagging both of us is is, is this feeling of loss after uh, the Freedom to Vote Act. But let, let me set you up here, Larry. So from January 2019 to January of this year, as our longtime listeners and supporters know, you and I were laser focused on passing the federal bill, the Freedom to Vote Act, before that, the, the For the People Act. And we did lose that fight, at least for now, because of the Senate filibuster. And I think it, it hit both of us pretty hard, Larry. And I'm wondering if we can start off our conversation by talking candidly for our listeners about that feeling of loss and, and just how difficult it's been to rebound over the, the past nine months for us, um, given that we were so tantalizingly close to, to winning a bill that uh, you know, we've been working our professional careers for. Yeah, you know, after that bill went down in January, um, a longtime friend said to me, I don't get it. I thought, I thought this was your point. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I mean, wasn't that the whole thing you had said for the first 10 years of your work, that there was no way that Congress was in the normal order going to pass fundamental reform of, uh, of our democracy, um, that any time you would get close, uh, the forces on the other side, seeing how much they were going to lose, would rally and succeed in stopping reform. And, and I had to say that when he said this to me, I, I was a little bit shocked with myself because, yes, in fact, I spent a huge chunk of my time saying the only way we were going to get fundamental reform was to build an extraordinary kind of movement, not one that just relied on people inside of Washington, but one that um, did something, some kind of moonshot to trigger really big uh, transformations. And, and I think that we were... I was seduced into believing maybe that wasn't necessary by the work that we did starting in January of building a series of democracy town halls in New Hampshire, where we basically got every single major party candidate, except for um, Kamala Harris, who had dropped out by the time we were um, uh, in a position to talk to her, to commit to fundamental democratic reform, to passing for the People Act or better. Um, and I think that, you know, something about the fact that we had that major commitment and then the extraordinary upset in Georgia giving us control of the Senate, um, let us, let me dream what, you know, 
the more honest part of me thought wasn't really possible, which was we were going to find a way, the president was going to find a way to get around the filibuster and pass the most important democracy reform legislation, I think, in the history of America. But obviously, that wasn't to be. Yeah. And so how, how has your thinking now changed uh, you know, in, in the months since the Freedom to Vote Act failed in terms of you know, what, what is the path forward? What, what, what do you see as, as the avenues for you know, continuing to push the ball forward in, in the movement for fundamental reform? Well, I think that everybody's holding their breath until this next election. Because I, you know, I do think that if this next election is not the disaster that it's supposed to be, um, if the next election creates a sufficient majority in the Senate for fundamental reform of the filibuster, you know, Sisyphus-like, I think we should grab the rock and push it up the hill once again. Because if we can reform the filibuster, at least establish the talking filibuster. I mean, the thing that frustrates me about talk about the filibuster is people are just literally ignorant about what we're talking about. Because the word makes it sound like we're talking about something that's been around for 150 years. Because everybody's always heard about the filibuster. Mr. Smith goes to Washington is the filibuster. But the filibuster we're talking about right now is radically different from that filibuster. The filibuster we're talking about right now was enabled by rules that were changed in 1975, but more importantly, by norms that were changed in 2009, when Mitch McConnell decided his number one job was to make sure Barack Obama was a single-term president. And Mitch McConnell changed the norm to make it so that every single bill had to run the gauntlet of the filibuster. Um, and, you know, that inspired crazies like Kirsten Sinema to, to say that she wants to establish the 60-vote uh, threshold for everything the Senate does, as if this is somehow a virtue in a democracy. But the point is, that filibuster, the one that started with Barack Obama, and then both sides used it. I'm not saying that it was just, Demo just Republicans that used it, but both sides used it. If that filibuster can be reformed and go back to the norm of invoking it only when it's critical to invoke it to somebody, or if you invoke it, you've got to actually stand on the floor of the Senate and speak as opposed to just text your leader and go home, or more likely go to your call center to raise money for your next campaign. Uh, if we could get that reform of that filibuster, then I think there's another reason to take a shot at this. And I'm hopeful that, that we'll see a movement to do it. But, you know, I think it's also important... I think there's another part of, of what was depressing about how that whole fight developed. You know, for anybody who's been watching democracy reform for a long time, and I've been in this for 15 years, there have been people obviously in it for much longer than that. But in the period of time of the last 15 years, what was striking about democracy reform is that it really started as reform of money in politics. John Sarbanes, who was the key architect behind the For the People Act, originally, uh, you know, pushed forward a way of funding campaigns that would liberate Congress people from the um, horrendous reality of spending 30 to 70% of their time raising money to fund their campaigns. I remember when a young congressperson named Beto O'Rourke came to watch, came to Harvard to be trained. You know, the Kennedy School has this training for new congresspeople. So he called me and said, can we have coffee 
And I sat down with him, and he was as depressed as I can imagine anyone being. And he said, um, here, look at this. And he showed me a handout he had gotten from the Democratic uh, caucus. And the handout was his schedule. And his schedule basically had uh, five hours of call time um, that he was supposed to engage in every single day, uh, five hours, uh, four hours of call time, and then one hour of, of facilitating the meetings that would be more fundraising. And that's not even counting dinners or breakfast. And he was so depressed when he realized, he said, I never thought this was what my job would be. But uh, this is what his job and everybody else's job uh, actually is. And so Sarbanes was really focused on how do you fix that? And the reason he was focused on that question was he knew, as anybody in Washington knows, that if you don't fix that, nothing serious can happen. Because if you don't stop the power of the lobbyists leveraging their fundraising to uh, support the Congress people, if you don't leave the Congress people, as Buddy Romer used to put it, free to lead, just to do what they think is right or what they think their constituents want, then it really doesn't matter how we elect them or who we elect they're still beholden to this tiny fraction of the 1%. What's striking is that was the motivation 10 years ago. And of course, at the same time, John Lewis was pushing uh, you know, the, uh, the voting rights provisions um, that eventually became part of the uh, For the People Act. But it was, it was Sarbanes who was pushing the idea that this ought to be the commitment of the Democratic caucus. And then it became the commitment of the Democratic caucus. But as it became the commitment of the caucus, the focus shifted less, more and more away from changing money in Washington and more to the question of voting rights. Now, don't get me wrong. I think voting rights are critically important. Um, and uh, there's no doubt that the way the states have evolved voting systems is a uh, travesty to the ideas of representative democracy. But democracy reform is not just about voting rights. And if we don't reinvigorate the uh, recognition that we need both to change the system for electing people and also change the incentives once they get to Washington, we're not going to have any successful change in the way our government fails to work. Right. And, and we can also, you know, as, as, as we long have done, Larry, point to the success of public financing programs in states across the country, like in Maine. In Connecticut, um, you know the the creation of uh, democracy dollars voucher programs in in Seattle, and I think Oakland is going to be voting on it um, this upcoming November. Um, you know, we we can as advocates point to these innovative public finance systems to show their effect on on just how much it changes those incentives you were talking about of, of reducing the burden of fundraising and allowing for more time talking to constituents and and you know actually legislating, which is a, a radical concept in in Washington D.C. Yeah, but but I, I I'm a little bit anxious that the reform movement is not sufficiently aggressive and demanding attention to this. I mean, the um, Freedom to Vote Act had a really aggressive little hack to allow it to continue to have public funding in the context of the House. There was nothing in the Senate. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the reality about uh, what's lost if we don't make that change, I think, um, is, you know, seen best in the, you know, the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act debacle uh, that we saw right at the very end of the s sequence to pass that bill. Remember, um, you know, inside that bill, there was a provision that really, for people who've been watching Washington for a long time, was astonishing. There's something called the carried interest loophole in the tax system. 
It's basically a loophole for um, uh, hedge fund managers or private equity partners that allows them to claim their income at a capital gains tax rate, which means that they pay half the normal tax on their income that uh, the, the rest of America pays. So, you know, people like uh, Warren Buffett can be paying less tax than um, than his secretary. Um, and and this has been around since the 60s. And since the 60s, everybody serious looking at this says it makes no sense. And many people on Wall Street say it makes no sense. It makes no sense to the underlying economy. Um, but it's always been kept because those who benefit from it are so keen to keep it. They benefit so much. It's, you know, chump change for them to pay off the Congress people to keep it. And I was astonished to see that the original version of the Inflation Reduction Act included a substantial modification of the carried interest tax credit, uh, tax loophole. And it was architected by Joe Manchin, of all people. Um, but literally the last week before that bill was voted on, Kirsten Sinema stood up and said she would not support the bill. The most important domestic legislation the Biden administration would put forward the first time we've addressed climate change in a comprehensive way. She would not support the bill unless the carried interest loophole was not addressed in the bill. Now, what possible reason was there for her to do this? Like, you know, this former radical from Arizona. What, what reason was there for her to, to try to benefit hedge fund managers, managers and um, private equity partners. The only reason was that almost $2 million she receives from those people in campaign contributions. And, and you take this point and you multiply it a thousand times over. The point is, we will not get any substantial change addressing the critical problems that we need until we find a way to get around um, uh, this uh, critical corruption of our system. Yeah, and that and that story is a perfect illustration. And I think as as a reform movement, we do need to do a better job. I think we've done a very good job over the last decade, but continuing at least and in more creative ways, showing that link between inaction and corruption in D.C. and actual policy outcomes that affect people's lives, that we really have to keep hammering that drum, right? Just keep going there because I think that story is is completely like a great illustration of of that corruption, which Larry, as you know, you've been writing about for eleven years now, um, longer. Um, 15 years, 15 yeah. years, but yeah. yeah. And, and 11 years, was it 11 years since Republic lost 2011? Yeah, it's 2011. That's right. 2011. Yeah, 11 years I, I know my Larry Lessig history, my, my trivia. <laughs> if we ever do a, a Jeopardy style, I, I got it, Larry. Um, but let, let me shift the conversation a bit, Larry, into, you know, okay, you know, losing the federal reform bill and, and, and seeing the corruption in DC is, is, is devastating. There's no doubt. But I, I do always find solace, or at least I have found solace in the fact that state-based reforms, as I alluded to earlier, can continue to push that ball forward. You know, we've seen activists win major victories in state courts um, with ballot initiatives and sometimes even through legislative action. Uh, but the Supreme Court uh, is poised, or at least seems to be poised, to close off some of these avenues uh, for state-based action in Moore v. Harper, uh, a case that some are saying will be a disaster on par with Shelby County v. Holder, which was the case that gutted the Voting Rights Act in, in 2013. Um, you and I have talked about it, but for, for our listeners, Larry, can you give us a little bit of, of, of what's going on in Moore v. Harper and, and just how worried you are about it? Well, someday somebody will write the definitive history of just how disastrous the case of Bush v. Gore was for the history of the United States. You know, you just kind of think about what the world would have looked like if that case hadn't happened. 
quite plausibly, you know, when the New York Times and other uh, um, news organizations did the um, postmortem from Florida and uh, asked the question, what would have happened if there had been a statewide recount of all the ballots? Um, they concluded, without doubt, uh, uh, Al Gore would have won the state. And Al Gore winning the state means he would have been president, which means climate change would have happened 20 years ago, climate change legislation, and the Iraq war would not have, I mean, you know, all the things that followed from that ridiculous decision on the surface are obvious. But underneath, it's even more invidious because the chief justice, Rehnquist, um, joined by Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia, um, began to germinate a theory which has been called the independent state legislature's doctrine. And what that theory basically says is when the Constitution uses the word legislature, they mean in contradistinction to the executive and the courts. They basically mean the legislature has a superpower. And there are a couple of contexts in which the legislature is mentioned uh, that might be significant. One is then the selection of presidential electors. Uh, Article 2 says uh, that the uh, state legislatures um, will set the, uh, the mode by which the electors are selected. And if you're a believer in the independent state legislature doctrine, you believe that means that the legislature acting alone, without the courts or without the governor, can decide how the electors are going to be chosen. Now, some people, I think, uh, you know, exaggerate the risk of this part of the decision because they say, well, if it's true that the legislature can do whatever the hell it wants, it must follow the legislature can do whatever it wants whenever it wants. So in 2000, the Florida state legislature was considering seating the Bush electors after the election, just voting and saying, these are the electors from the state of um, Florida. And some people think that's what the independent state legislature doctrine must mean, so that if there's an election and the legislature doesn't like the results in their state, they can vote for a new slate of electors, and those are the electors that will be counted in the Electoral College. I don't think that's actually possible under the law as uh, the Constitution as it's written, because the Constitution, while giving the state legislatures the power to set the mode by which the electors are selected, also gives Congress expressly the power to decide when the electors have to be appointed. And so Congress has said they have to be appointed on election day. Early in our history, um, the states had a period of time, like 40 or 50 days to select the electors. But to avoid fraud, they said, okay, we're all going to do it on the same day. So it's election day when the electors are selected, which means under the Constitution, it couldn't be the case that um, the legislature after the election decides to pick a new slate of electors. That would just violate... Congress's decision about when the electors are to be appointed. So the independent state legislature doctrine, you know, certainly would give the legislatures the power to say, we're not going to have an election, or whatever the result of the election, we say that on election day, we're going to pick one slate or the other. I think those are certainly powers which the legislature would have if the court embraces the independent state legislature doctrine fully. But they wouldn't have the power to muck about with who the electors are after the election day. Now, here's, here's what they could do, which is actually at the center of a book that Matt Seligman and I are publishing at Yale Press next year. This is a terrifying implication of the Supreme Court's uh, 
decision in the elector's case. Um, while, this, while the Constitution wouldn't allow the state legislature to pick a new slate of electors after Election Day, what the Chafalo case says is that the state legislature has the power to tell the electors how they must vote. And more troublingly, as the Baca case, the companion case held, they can set up a procedure where if the elector doesn't vote the way the elector is told the, he, he or she must vote, then the elector can be removed and a new elector appointed. So whereas the Constitution wouldn't stop, would stop a state legislature from appointing a new slate of electors, under the Chafalo decision, the state legislature could, after the election, pass a resolution that says, the electors shall vote for the following candidate, and if they don't vote for that candidate, they will be removed until we find somebody who does. So I think there's a, that's not the independent state legislature doctrine. That's just the consequence of the Supreme Court getting the elector case wrong. But that's, I think, a consequence that we should be worried about in 2024. The other part of the independent state legislature doctrine argument, though, I think is much more significant for reform. And that's because there's been a long-standing argument on the Supreme Court of, of when, the, um, when the Constitution says that the legislature... Um, has the power to set the boundaries of the uh, congressional districts. Um, does that mean that the legislature has to do it, or can you hand that job off to an independent redistricting commission, as many states have? Um, and um, the court five to four held that, though the Constitution says legislature, there's nothing wrong with the legislature basically delegating this to a body it doesn't control. And so, yes, independent commissions are constitutional. That was the Arizona legislature case. But if the independent state legislature doctrine is endorsed in Moore, then it would follow that uh, um, states uh, don't have the power to set up independent, state, uh, independent districting commissions, at least ones that the legislature doesn't ultimately ratify by their own vote. And so that means that the most important success in fighting gerrymandering in the period since Dave Daly wrote his you know, wonderful book about uh, rat fucking about um, the 2010 election, the, the biggest success we've seen since 2010, motivated largely by people like Dave Daly, has been the drive to get inde uh, independent state legislature uh, districting commissions. And you know, here is heroes like Katie Fahey, who built a movement in Michigan to set that up, all of those efforts would be wiped away and we would be back to a world where the legislature alone gets to decide how to draw these districts. Now, what, what could be done about that? Well, well, again, one thing that could be done is if the legislature sets up an quote-unquote independent commission, but then commits to itself, at least, that it's going to adopt whatever the commission does, then we'll be, you know, that's not a problem. The other thing is... We don't have to leave districting to states. The Constitution, as Chief Justice Roberts in the Rucho case, which was the case that held that the Constitution doesn't prohibit partisan gerrymandering, Roberts said, you know, if you don't like the consequences of partisan gerrymandering, Congress always retains the power to draw their own districts. So if the states continue to be as crazy and unrepresentative as they are, many of them are, then we could just imagine Congress deciding to 
draw districts in a different way. My favorite solution is the Fair Representation Act, which, you know, when I was trying to be a candidate in the Democratic uh, uh, primary for president, this was one of my three commitments, the Fair Representation Act. And that act would basically say, we'll have multi-member districts and uh, instant runoff voting. Um, so, uh, you know, imagine five Congress people in a district, you you vote and rank your your choices, and then you pick the top five that come out of that um, to be the Congress people. That would create much more diversity in Congress, and it also would reduce significantly the the burden that districting um, would bear in in the process. So that's another solution Congress could adopt. But both of these are, I, I think, problems which the Supreme Court is teeing up for for us after twenty twenty four. Yeah, and we'll we'll dedicate a full episode to Morphy Harper because this is going to be all over the news and something that reformers are going to have to grapple with one way or the other. Um, so so we'll be we'll be sure to do a deep dive in that soon. So this is just a a, a brief dip into the waters here. But but I don't want to leave the the Supreme Court yet, Larry, because uh, not to get even more depressing, but the Supreme Court is clearly getting incredibly reactionary on not just uh, you know some democracy issues but it seems like all democracy issues um the conservative justices now seem poised to further gut the voting rights act this time giving a major pass to racial gerrymandering on a scale of 1 to 10 how much should we be worrying about the future of the voting rights act well i think that the wild card was um flagged by justice um brown jackson she and her questioning was quite aggressive in pushing the lawyers to articulate what she called, what you know, it's been called the progressive originalism of the Civil War amendments. And I think that what she's doing is exactly the right response to the conservative majority's current strategy. You know, the conservative majority likes to paints itself as deeply principled in its commitment to quote-unquote originalism. Now, whether you like originalism or not, as a matter of first principles, and there's lots of reasons to be skeptical of it, if that's what they're going to do, at the very least, they ought to be consistent about it. And I think a very fair criticism about the way originalism has lived since it was born in the Reagan administration is that it's been deployed for conservative purposes and has been invisible when the purposes might be something other than conservative. Um, you know, uh, I remember when I argued the Eldred case, which was the challenge to the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act, our whole argument was grounded in a kind of uh, originalist argument about the nature of congressional power. And I remember thinking, I just don't understand how the conservatives avoid the conclusion we were advancing if they applied their principles in a consistent way. It didn't even occur to me that they just would be silent. So that the majority was written by Justice Ginsburg, who obviously didn't care anything about originalism. So she didn't have any reason to be concerned about the consistency with other originalist cases. And the dissents were written by Justice Stevens and Justice Breyer, who also didn't care about originalism. At that point, the five conservatives who were committed to originalism we're just happy to stand in the background and let um, this uh, conservative result uh, uh, happen, even though it was inconsistent with originalism. But I think the most dramatic context where that conflict exists is in the Civil War Amendments. Um, I've spent the last five years teaching classes on the Reconstruction Amendments. 
And I think there is, there is no way to overstate just how dramatically the court has distorted the original meaning of those amendments. Um, you know, everything from the state action doctrine, which, you know, basically says the state has no obligation to do anything. It's only if it does something bad against you that it can be held responsible. That doctrine, the idea that Congress has no role in specifying the privileges or immunities of United States citizens, a whole range of these doctrines that the, you know, people take for granted now as what the Civil War amendments established are just lies, literal lies. They just have nothing to do with the with what the framers of those amendments were were on about. And uh, Justice Jackson's uh, questioning uh, at oral arguments about the um, affirmative action cases, I think, brings that out precisely. I mean, she was drilling home the point that the framers of those amendments were not colorblind. They were crafting what they did. Uh, with a sole purpose of trying to achieve equality that had otherwise been decimated by 150 years um, or 250 years of uh, slavery. Um, and so the notion that um, now we should somehow imagine that none of that can matter in uh, government policy is from an originalist perspective crazy. So I think the real question will be, how do the conservatives respond to that? Because if the conservatives take up the challenge, and you know maybe they don't necessarily agree with her, but they do engage in that under that question, like what is the original understanding and how does it uh, apply to the case? I actually think there's a lot of opportunities. So here's one we've been pushing. Um, uh, people who've listened to this podcast will also know that we've been trying to litigate the question of whether super PACs can be regulated, and our strategy has been a kind of progressive originalist strategy. Because, you know, we know at least two justices. When we began this, there were clearly four justices. But now there are two justices on the record who would say, yes, you can regulate super PACs. Um, uh, Justice Jackson I, has not taken a position on that, so we'll see where she is. But, um, you know, the conservatives, the originalists, um, have written opinions that make it sound like there's no way Congress or any legislature could regulate super PACs. But Justice Thomas has increasingly been pushing the position that we should interpret the First Amendment the way the framers would have interpreted it. And the question he said, you know, in reviewing, for example, the famous case of New York Times versus Sullivan, the question he said again and again is, I would approach this by asking what the framers of the First Amendment would have done for the question presented. Well, if you ask that about campaign finance regulation, there's just no doubt what the answer is. The framers of our Constitution would have had no problem with the regulation of super PACs, absolutely none. And um, there's wonderful work by um, uh, a former student of mine, a guy named Judd Campbell, um, about the original First Amendment and how the original First Amendment was understood and what they did. So if Thomas is consistent, Thomas would have to say, well, you're right. We should be able to regulate super PACs. But even if you don't take the extreme position Thomas has taken, that you just basically ask the question, how would the framers have interpreted super PACs? If you take the more moderate originalist position, which is the Supreme Court has said you can regulate when there's quote unquote corruption. How do we interpret what the word corruption is? Because um, there are many conceptions of corruption. Um, and so if there are many conceptions of corruption, an originalist, one who's concerned to make sure 
the judges just don't have the discretion to pick and choose the answer to their question. The originalists should say we should adopt the original conception of corruption. Well, there again, the framers of our Constitution were deeply concerned about what we could call dependence corruption. And that corruption um, is exactly the sort of corruption that these huge contributors to super PACs are creating. So there again, the framers um, would have had no problem, or this conception of what the framers were doing, one they could regulate corruption, would have no problem regulating this dependence corruption too. So there again, I think that we have an argument that, um, that our principal originalists should be uh, willing to allow the regulation of at least these super PACs. So that strategy follows from exactly what Justice Jackson is doing. And I think, um, you know, we'll see from how uh, the conservatives react to her assertion here, whether this is a fertile ground to continue to try to sow. And, and Larry, we, we have teed up a case uh, that will attempt to make this argument. Um, I don't know. I mean, we've already written a little bit about it publicly. But I mean, if you want to take a couple of minutes just to explain the past couple months um, in a little bit of time we have remaining. Right. Well, so we in Massachusetts, um, Equal Citizens in Massachusetts, is beginning to work with a bunch of um, groups to think about an initiative in Massachusetts that would that would address the question of um, democracy reform for Massachusetts. So, you know, even though Massachusetts, for Democrats at least, looks like a ideal state, because um, it's basically a one-party state, um, actually... There's a lot of weaknesses to Massachusetts democracy, and there's a real opportunity to get Republicans to like the idea of reform because a lot of these reforms would make the state more representative, and it turns out there are more than Democrats in the state. Um, but one of the measures we've been trying to push is uh, consideration of um, super PAC uh, regulation. And we're teeing up um, the initiative for that, and the attorney general has denied us the right to have that initiative on the ballot because she says it violates freedom of speech. And so we're in the process of setting up litigation about whether it violates the freedom of speech. And again, that argument will deploy the progressive originalism that uh, Justice Jackson has deployed, um, and uh, we'll see how far it gets. But I think that um, it's going to be harder and harder for the conservative majority to deploy originalism on one side. And I think that means it's more and more incumbent on us to try to develop um, understandings of what originalism across the board might look like, either to resist it or to deploy it or to use it where we can see it achieves ends of justice more effectively. Right. So stay tuned. We'll definitely be talking more about that. So Larry, last question, and then I'm going to let you go. Um, you know, I want to end on a little bit more of an uplifting note here. Um, what what gives you hope? Uh, because for so many, the rise of uh, these election deniers, um, the conservatism of the Supreme Court, the Democrats' failure to pass the Freedom, Freedom to Vote Act, these are all reasons to give up on the possibility of reform. So why why are you still here? Why why are you continuing to dedicate yourself to an organization like Equal Citizens and continuing to use? you know, your platform uh, to keep up this fight after 15 years? Well, there is a place that gives me hope. Um, you know, we haven't, we haven't talked about the full range of reasons to be hopeless. Um, um, you know, we've talked about why the government fails so badly. We could have spent another hour talking about why we fail so badly. You know, a striking fact to recognize is the same number of people today 
believe the election of 2020 was stolen as believed it was stolen on January 6th. Despite living in a free speech society, despite having access to more information than humans have ever had access to, um, still, we have a world where we're sorted into our partisan bubbles and we're fed the information we want to hear. And the more we're fed that information, the more we believe it, whether or not it has anything to do with reality. And that's an incredibly depressing fact, because you can't do democracy if we're living in different worlds. I mean, democracy is all about, it's the machine for reaching common understanding and common agreement. Um, and that depends on us living in the same factual world, epistemological world, if you want to be fancy about it. And we don't. So how could you begin to solve that problem? Well, another project we've helped stand up, um, Equal Citizens has been working with a group called The People to stand up a project called Deliberations, which facilitates small group Zoom-like deliberations about complicated topics. The first topic we did was the Electoral College. Um, and participants basically watch short videos. We know nobody reads, so they watch five to six minute videos, three of them. And, um, and then they're surveyed about their attitudes about reform of the Electoral College in this case. And then they're thrown into these rooms with a mix of people and they deliberate for an hour on these different reforms. And then afterwards, they're surveyed again. And this is not an attempt to be a poll. We're not trying to say this is, you know, X percent of America believes something and Y percent believes something else. But it is an attempt to see how that deliberation helps people evolve in their understanding and their belief about certain issues. And because we're doing it on a platform called Chasm, we can have a million of these six-person deliberations happening at the same time. So it's, it's deliberation, it's small group deliberation scalable to, uh, to an endless number of people participating. And what we find when we see the result of these deliberations is people change their mind. You know, if, you, if you're a political advertising specialist and um, somebody said to you, I've got an ad that's going to move the population one point, like after this ad, I can statistically significantly say, with confidence say, we've moved the view by one point. You'd say, that's pretty good, you know, because ads don't have much effect in the world. We see people moving by 20 points. We see the process of just giving them a chance to slow down, face each other in a safe environment. And that's one thing Zoom gives you the chance to do. I mean, you're sitting in your living room, you're sitting in your, your bedroom, but you're, but you're you know, engaging with people face-to-face -face in this environment. When people do it like that, they can, uh, they can actually understand each other and they can actually do democracy in an effective way. I, the analogy I like to think about is, I don't remember the movie um, Independence Day. And in Independence Day, you know, these aliens are attacking and taking over the world. And um, of course, they're monitoring all of our communications. And uh, at a certain point, somebody has the brilliant idea to use Morse code because they reason that the aliens don't know Morse code. And of course, they don't know Morse code. And so they can use Morse code to get around these AI-like invaders. Um, well, I think it's a perfect analogy because, you know, social media is like the AI 
invader, right? It has taken over our minds and it's driven us into polarized uh, pockets, focused on hating each other. It's destroyed the capacity for democracy. And we need to find our own Morse code. And like slowing down and pulling us out of these Twitter feeds or TikTok feeds of content and just allowing us to face people human to human is our Morse code. It is a way for us to do what uh, uh, humans can do well without being susceptible to the poison of these digital platforms. Um, so I'm optimistic that if we can find ways to leverage and grow this experience, um, that we could, we could uh, you know, build an alternative. We're never going to shut down social media. But if we can build an alternative which is you know, edifying, people have more confidence in, kind of like the Wikipedia of public political attitudes where people have a reason to have confidence in it because – um, because they've seen how well it works. I, I think that um, that's, a, that's a way to begin to push back against the alien AI invaders. Um, and, you know, my dream is, you know, imagine a show like 60 Minutes uh, that does an episode about some complicated subject. People have watched it. And then 60 Minutes says, okay, now jump into a deliberation about this. And after, you know, 100,000 people deliberate on it. 60 Minutes is able to say, well, the more liberals talked about this, the more they thought this, the more conservatives talked about this, the more they thought that. Um, you begin to see people demonstrating that we actually can do democracy if you just do it at human scale and at human speed. Um, this is, you could call it the slow democracy movement, and I'm a big believer. And it's funny, Larry, because the slow democracy movement is actually what led you to begin or to be, uh, to, to create another way. I mean, this podcast owes its roots to uh, your your kind of um, thinking through slow democracy. So um, I'm with you, Larry. I'm excited about it. We'll we'll do an episode. Maybe we can bring on Katie and and the the deliberations team and and really dig into it. Um, and maybe we can even get some guests who have gone through it. Uh, that would be fun. Um, so we should, we should do that, but, but Larry, wonderful talking to you, uh, really quite optimistic. I didn't think when I asked you that last question, we'd get uh, an independence day reference and some AI and aliens <laughs> thrown in there, but, uh, every conversation with you, Larry brings, uh, in, in new directions and makes me think, uh, you know, about democracy in a new way. So Larry, thanks so much for joining me today in this conversation. Um, to our listeners, uh, I'm telling you, I promise we're back. We're going to make this a, a consistent thing every week. Um, I'm really excited about it. And uh, we're here to continue fighting for democracy alongside you because it's going to need all of us to, uh, to get the reform that we need. So, Larry, I will talk to you soon. Thanks, Adam. All right. This has been another episode of Another Way, and I'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.